0: Jesse Cripps from Exeter, California. Everyone said, Lord, bless it. Have a seat. Praise the Lord, everybody. Praise the Lord, everybody. Praise the Lord, everybody. Hallelujah, Jesus. Ooh, I feel good here. I feel like Jesus is here. We're going to uh, take a moment and do something that's a little bit different. First of all, I've got to tell you that I feel very humble tonight to think that there are several ministers that have come here tonight to hear our presentation of the history of the Bible, and I thank God for each and every one of you that are here, and I'm thankful for the work that you're doing for the Lord, and um, I just pray that uh, I can do justice to the story that I have to tell you tonight. But I have a, a very dear friend here tonight, and it's not often that that we get to spend a lot of time together. and Brother George Hancock is a dear friend of mine and he didn't do what I wanted him to do when he came up and sing, so I'm gonna gonna put him on the spot and have him do something else. Brother George, I'd like for you to come up and get on the drums, if you will. Now, I want you to know something. He might look white on the outside, but he's got more black in him than any man I know. (laughs) Is that all right? Can I say that here? Now, I've asked Sister Verlaine, and I want them to crank it up, and then I want you to get into a good old course and crank it up, and then I want you to stop the rest of the music, and I want to hear a drum solo from Brother George Hancock. Is that all right? Now, if you want me to, I'll pull out Bible for what I'm doing here. Now... There's only one thing. I don't want them worshiping God all by themselves up here. I feel like I can preach now. (laughs) Thank you, Brother George. I love you, and I'll put you on the spot every time I can. Praise the Lord. You may be seated tonight. Praise the name of the Lord. I'm telling you what, that Sister Verlin can eat up an organ, can't she? I just thought that thing might just come to life on its own and start just bellowing out all by itself the way she was eating it up. Praise the Lord. You are a blessed people. Thomas said, my Lord and my God. And Jesus said, you believe because you've seen. But blessed is he that has believed but not have seen. You are a blessed people tonight. Praise the name of the Lord. I am so excited. I am going to say something here, and I I want you to know I have several people that have asked me to meet with them and talk to them about their personal finances this week. And I have some of you that are scheduled for tomorrow afternoon. Uh, Your pastor has put me on the spot, and I have to be obedient to him. So. um, I am going to have to reschedule those that I was supposed to meet with tomorrow afternoon. So I need you, if you're here, to see me after church so that I can reschedule um, with you and make sure that I get with you while I'm here. And I ask you to forgive me and uh, pray for your pastor at the same time. (laughs) But... uh, we're going to be doing something tomorrow afternoon and we've got to take care of that and, and um, we'll be getting that out of the way and then we can take care of you and give you uh, what help we can give you. Praise the Lord, everybody. How many feels good in the Holy Ghost tonight? He said he inhabits the praises of his people. I said he inhabits the praises of his people. Understand something here. I don't want to go to a church that on occasion has a visitation of the Spirit of God. Do you hear what I say? Do you know what the word inhabits mean? It means that he lives there. He said he lives in the presence of the praise of his people. I want to come to a church. I want to come to a sanctuary. I want to come to an assembly where Christ lives and dwells all the time. He inhabits the praises of his people. I want to praise the Lord. How about you tonight? Glory to God. Praise the name of the Lord. You know, we can do this anytime. I'm feeling good. I feel real good. There is something special about a people that knows how to praise the Lord. There are a lot of people that go to churches all across America every Sunday. And if you go in the church houses, you have to go in there with a corner sometimes to check everybody's pulse to see if anybody's alive. But I know that people that are filled with the Spirit of Christ that have Him on the inside are alive in Christ. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Praise the Lord. The Bible says, in Him was the light, and the light was the life of men. Oh, but he, in Him was light and the light was the life of men. I want to have Christ in me. How about you? Praise the Lord. I want people to see my light. I went out with your pastor today, and uh, I watched him compel people to come to the house of the Lord. There's nothing bashful about it when he gets out there. He compels people to come to the house of the Lord. But uh, I'm here to tell you a story tonight, and I hope, tonight will be a little bit more interesting yesterday. I know that I got a lot of the history out of the way yesterday, and I tried to do that in a, uh, in, as, in as good a manner as I can because there is a lot of history to tell, and there's going to be a lot more history tonight. But I do pray that I'll be able to impart a little bit of knowledge to you tonight and help you to appreciate the Word of God. I hope that after I leave here that there will never be another Bible left on a pew of a church from one Sunday to the next. I hope that when I leave here that there will be another, never another Bible left in the floorboard of a car from one week to the next. I pray that when I leave here that there will never be dust that will accumulate on the word of God as it lays upon your coffee table in your living room. I pray that when I leave here that there's not a day that goes by that everybody in this sanctuary would not find some time to pick up the Word of God and start hiding away in their heart that they might not sin against Him. I hope that you will find that the Word of God will become a light unto your path and a lamp unto your feet. I pray that you will be as David and you will begin to meditate all the day long on the law of the Lord and that it will become your delight. I pray that when you get the word of God in your heart uh, that the faith will start dwelling a uh, welling up within you uh, and you will start receiving the promises that God has for you in his word and you will start taking charge uh, of the things in your life uh, by the power and authority of the Holy Ghost in the name of Jesus Christ I don't tell this story so that you can just see all these pretty things that are up here. But I tell this story so that there will be a love in your heart for the Word of God like you've never had it before. I was telling your pastor last year, 16 Catholic people hearing this story were baptized in the name of Jesus Christ simply because they heard the story of the history of the Word of God. I want to tell you something. It's powerful. It's powerful. I don't want to be without it. That's my sword. That's my weapon. There's only two. When you start reading about putting on the whole armor of God, there's only two offensive weapons that God gives you. The rest of everything he gives you is for defense. But one of them is the word and the other is prayer. If you want to get back to it, go into the Word and find it out for yourself. Prayer and the Word of God, that's your offensive weapons. And that's what you can do, use to overcome this world so that he will be your God and you will be his son. Praise the name of the Lord. Well, I left you yesterday in the middle of the 15th century, about 1450. I told you about a man by the name of Johann Gooseflesh. We know him as John Gutenberg today. If I had a name like Gooseflesh, I'd change my name to Gutenberg, too. Gooseflesh means Gooseflesh. Gutenberg means Beautiful Mountain. And I like Beautiful Mountain better than I like Gooseflesh. But we uh, found in the uh, 1450, 1453, somewhere in that time, uh, John Gutenberg invented the printing press. That was going to change the history of the entire world. And uh, shortly after that, just a couple of years after that, we heard that Constantinople, the capital of the Greek Orthodox, uh, fell to the Turks. Now, as in most cases and in most places, whenever a city or a nation is under siege... uh, what begins to happen a couple of years in advance when people begin to see the inevitable taking place? Uh, as they, as the wealthy people, the people that had a lot of wealth and, uh, and the people that held the libraries there in Constantinople, as they began to see the handwriting on the war, wall, the Turks had been warring against Constantinople for many years, for many decades as it was, uh, and it was evident... Uh, that the church were finally going to overrun Constantinople so uh, a couple of three years before the actual uh, overrun of the city the wealthy people of the city began to leave that city and began to uh, go out and scatter out throughout the Mediterranean and there was these little refuge colonies all over uh, the Mediterranean of Greek speaking people now understand that in England we're still speaking latin and we're still speaking uh uh what we know as the middle english language at that time but uh latin and the middle english were the two main languages that were being spoken in england at the time and when Constantinople fell and these people left not only did they take their greek language with them to these little refugee refugee camps but they also took with them their greek library and when they took with them their Greek library, they took with them the parchments uh, that had been passed down from centuries to century to century that contained the Word of God in the Greek language. Now, as we told you earlier yesterday, the first uh, 1,500 years or so, God preserved His Word in the Hebrew language. And now we had the Word of God that had been stored in the Greek language up until the middle of the, four, uh, the 15th century. And so all of these parchments that they, they took with them, all of their possessions they took with them. Now understand this. The total knowledge of the world at that time, if you were to take all of the knowledge of the world in 1450 and put it in one room, you would have had about 100 books in the latin language and you would have had a total of about 500 books in the greek language and that was all the knowledge of the world that was in existence in the middle of the 14th, 15th century in 1450 that's not a lot and you're going to hear about a man by the name of erasmus that had that read every book that had ever been written Uh, Up until his lifetime, well, when you think about it, there was only about 600 books that had been written. That's not a lot of reading to do. Now, I know that there's some school children here, and if you told them they had to read 600 books in their life, they would go, oh, me. You know, my children never, they got these cliff notes, you know. My son still never has read To Kill a Mockingbird. He got the cliff notes and made an A-plus on his book report. I don't know how he did it from the cliff notes, but he did it. But uh that's the way they do things today. You know the McDonald's society, give it to me right now and hurry it up so I can go and do something else. But uh that's the, all of the knowledge that was in the world at the time. So here we have Constantinople falling. We have people going out throughout the Mediterranean, setting up these little refugee camps and they're speaking Greek. This provoked a Greek-speaking revival in the nation of England. All of a sudden, people began to understand, hey, there's another language out there. We need to learn something about it. And they began to understand that that not only was there the Greek language, but there was these 500 books in the Greek language, and the only way that they were going to read these 500 books was to learn the language. And so later in in the 15th century, you'll hear about a couple of individuals that began to read and begin to learn the greek language and it was going to start spark another revival in the history of the written word of god but uh so much for that at this point in eight, in 1464 a man by the name of erasmus was born erasmus was spo- uh, is supposed to be the last great scholar that has ever really lived and and uh, they talk about him with great reverence and everything in fact uh, There's a guy that's on the radio by the name of uh, Rush Limbaugh or something like that. Uh, He compares himself to Erasmus. Well, when you hear him, him compare himself to Erasmus and all the wisdom and knowledge that he has, that's who he's talking about, a man by the name of Erasmus that was born in 1464. Now, it's important that you know a couple of things. Erasmus was born the illegitimate child of a Catholic priest. All right, he was uh, a man that was uh, supposed to be uh, uh, celibate, a man that was supposed to have given his life to God, and here he fathered a child that was become an illegitimate child. And we'll learn about more about Erasmus uh, in the early part of the 16th century. Uh, Here we go. We got Erasmus being born in 1464. We've got uh, uh, William uh, or John Wycliffe uh, dying in the uh, late. Thirteen hundreds, thirteen 1384 from 1384 until the early part of the 16th century there is basically silence on any new uh um any new movement into the written word of god in the english language but in 1490 a man by the name of thomas lineacre how many has heard of thomas lineacre nobody's heard of thomas lineacre Thomas Lineacre was the chief dean of students at Oxford University and he was there and uh, teaching the students and everything else and it come to his attention that that there was this little greek-speaking community this little refugee camp over in Italy and uh, they were teaching people how to read write and speak the greek language and so Thomas Lineacre took a sabbatical took a leave of absence there at Oxford University And he went over into Italy and there he began to learn the Greek language for the purpose of coming back to Oxford and starting a Greek language course there at Oxford University. He gets over to Italy, and he begins to learn to read and write and speak the language. Uh, He's there for about seven or eight years because he's not a great linguist himself. Uh, It's very difficult for him to learn the language. But after he gets there and he learns the language, he heads back to Oxford University, and under his arm with him, he carries the four Gospels in the Greek language. He goes back to Oxford University there as he begins to try to start writing the first uh, uh, grammar book for the Greek language at Oxford University he begins to read the Gospels in the Greek language uh, after reading the Gospels several times uh, he made a declaration He said, either I am not a Christian, or this is not the Word of God. And I've got to find out which is the case, because the Bible that I've been reading does not read like the Bible that I'm reading now, and I've got to figure out, because if this is the Word of God, then there's something else that I need to do in my own personal life. So he called a young man in to his office, a man by the name of John Collette, uh, a man that was a great and a gifted scholar, a gifted linguist in himself, uh, and he began to show him the differences uh, between what was in the Latin Vulgate Bible and that which was in the Greek tongue. John Collette could not contain himself. He said, well, you know what? I need to get over there to that refugee camp, and I need to learn a little bit more about the Greek language myself. Uh, So off to Italy, John Collette went. Uh, Now, it's interesting to note uh, that John Collette happened to be the chaplain at Oxford University well because he was so gifted because he was a great scholar when he got over to Italy it only took him two years to learn how to read write speak the Greek language and it became very fluent to him and when he came back to Oxford he not only brought copies of the Gospels with him but he brought with him a book of Romans and he headed back to Oxford University he began to read it and began to understand that the Latin Vulgate had been corrupted over the years and what he had seemed to be the worst of God in under underneath his arm Uh, so that particular week after he got back uh, he got up there in front of the chapel service uh, and it's kind of like the chapel service at most Bible schools brother uh, Sheila when he got there the chapel at Oxford University seated 5,000 people But when he got up to speak on this particular day at the chapel service, there was about 50 students scattered out throughout the the building there. And so John Collette simply opened up the book of Romans and there he began to do something that nobody had ever done at Oxford University before. He began to read the Word of God in the English tongue to the students at Oxford University. Now remember, there was a decree. There was a law. You could not read the word of God. You could not speak the word of God. You could not study the word of God unless it was in the Latin language. The church, in parenthesis, forbade that the that word of God would be read in any language except the Latin language. But here John Collette, the chaplain of Oxford University, stood up there and began to read the word of God for the first time ever over the pulpit in the English tongue. The next time they had chapel service, instead of having 50 people out there. Now, he didn't get up there and expound on it. He didn't get up there and preach on it. He didn't get up there and teach on it. All he did was read the word of God. Thus saith the word of the Lord. And he began to read it to them. He was reading them the book of Romans. The next time chapel service came around, he looked out in the audience Instead of having 50 people there, he had 150 people there. He did exactly the same thing. He opened up the book of Romans and there he began to read to them in the English tongue once again the book of Romans. No, no explanation of it. No trying to try to help people understand what it said. He just simply read them the Word of God in their own tongue. I want to tell you something. uh, There's something precious about the Word of God. Uh, I was telling your pastor today. uh, There was a a missionary that was sent over to Russia just a few years ago. Uh, He got over there. He went over there, cold turkey. There was no church waiting for him when he got there. There was nobody to meet him on the shore. There was nobody to pick him up to the airport. Uh, there was just something in his heart uh, that said I want you to go to the people in Russia and there I want you to preach the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, because there's somebody on that side of the world uh, that I have given my life for that I've shed my blood for that I bore the stripes on my back that they might be healed uh, and I want you to go over there and I want you to tell them the story uh, that I came from heaven, uh, I put on a robe of flesh uh, and I hung upon a tree uh, so that they might have life and heaven more abundantly glory to God we just might be here a while tonight is that all right this missionary got over to Russia nobody there to meet him nobody to talk to him he went out day after day passing out tracks he sweated he labored he knocked on doors he did everything possible and he just couldn't seem to get through to anybody he had gone to school he had learned the russian tongue so he could speak to the people but as he went out day after day he would hand out the tracts and it seemed like it was to no avail one day he found himself on his face before god you know somebody says when all else fails go go to prayer I want to tell you something. Uh, Go to prayer first time right off the bat and nothing else will fail. Praise the Lord. We just got it backwards sometimes. Uh, We need to go to God first and let him take care of the business and we don't have to worry about it. Uh, But here this missionary found himself uh, in a closet of prayer. There he was on his face before the Lord and the Lord spoke to him. He said, I want you to go to the farmer's market tomorrow. And when you're there at the farmer's market, he said, there's going to come a man that's going to come to you and he's going to ask you for directions to a certain place and when he asks you for those directions what I want you to do is I want you to turn to him and ask him if he knows Jesus Christ so the man the missionary goes down there and he begins to walk around the farmers market just looking, picking up the apples looking at the apples squeezing the tomatoes and everything else and as he's standing there a man walked up to him and asked him for directions he turned to him and said, do you know Jesus Christ? And the man looked at him with a surprised look on his face. And he said, last night in prayer as I was praying, the Lord told me to go to a man and ask him for directions. And if he turned to me and asked him, me if I knew Jesus, I was to invite him to my house. Uh, he got to the house that night. Uh, And as he stood in the living room of that, or into the basement of that house, he went down into the basement of that house uh, and squeezed in the basement of that house was about 30 people uh, sitting there waiting for church service to start. uh, he, he as he walked into the room the people in the room looked at him and when they saw him they began to lift their hands toward heaven and began to praise and exalt the king of kings of the lord of lords and as they began to praise him they began to speak in an unknown tongue they began to speak in tongues as the spirit of god gave them the utterance the pastor was totally surprised he looked at the people and then he couldn't help himself but he too began to lift his hands and speak in that heaven language Uh, after the revival uh, finished for the night uh, he asked the young man he said uh, let me ask you a question who talked to you about the Holy Ghost who is it that told you about the Holy Ghost he said well nobody he said you see he said the man that lives in this house uh, came down to the basement one day and there in the middle in the corner of the basement he found this little bitty Bible set there stuck in the basement Uh, and he said he began to read the bible and as he began to read the bible there was something that began to stir up in him and he became excited about what he was reading so he invited his neighbors over and as he invited his neighbors over he began to read with them and he said one night when we were all assembled here He said the only thing we were doing, we were reading from this book called Isaiah. And he said as we began to read the word of God from Isaiah, he said all of a sudden there came a presence in this place. Something like we had never felt before. And all of a sudden, before we knew what happened, each and every one of us had our hands toward heaven and we began to speak in another tongue." I remember a man by the name of Peter that went to a house called Cornelius. And the Bible says, and while he yet spake, the Holy Ghost fell upon them. I want to tell you something. There's power in the Word. There's power in the Word. John Collette, see, I didn't forget where I was, I knew exactly where I was. <laughs> John Colette reads to 150 people there. The next time they have chapel service, there's 500 people there. The next time they have chapel service, there's 900 people there. Then there's 2,000 people there. And then all of a sudden the chapel is full. 5,000 souls sitting in there. Why? To hear the word in their own tongue. The next time he has chapel service, there's 5,000 in the chapel service, and there's another 5,000 waiting to get in as soon as they leave so that they can hear the word of God. Well, the Lord Bishop of London had a little problem with that. He got all upset. He heard about this revival breaking out over they got 5,000 people going to chapel service at Oxford, and they're reading the word in the English tongue. Well, we've got to do something about that. Well, they had a little problem. As they began to contemplate how they were going to take John Collette out of that chapel service and take him down behind St. Paul's Cathedral and burn him along with his Bible, somebody said, Lord Bishop, hello we got a little problem here what's that John Colette's daddy well what about his daddy well his daddy is the Lord mayor of London second in power only to King Henry the seventh king of England okay we got a man whose daddy's pretty high up in the political realm well wonder if there's any way to get around that well we got another problem what's that you see John Colette's daddy the Lord mayor of London yeah well just a few years ago remember that battle that took place over there and King Henry the seventh was there leading the troops in the battle yeah well it seems that John Colette's daddy saved the king's life you better not touch John Collette okay we don't want to touch john colette what are we going to do let's fire him well we can't just fire him because he is a preacher and he's supposed to be preaching well i tell you what let's put him over at st paul's that little old church over there seats twenty thousand people and there's not more than 150 200 people at the most shows up in sunday school on sunday morning and that place is so empty they couldn't hear a word if he began to speak it anyway all right, let's do that. So they fire John Collette. No longer does he have a job at Oxford. They send him all the way across London to a place called, little old bitty church called St. Paul's Cathedral. It only seats about 20,000 people. And sure enough, John Collette gets up there on the first Sunday morning and there's 200 people in a building that seats 20,000. That'd make any pastor's heart wilt. Wouldn't it, Brother George? <laughs> Oh my goodness. So, John Collett thought back, well, you know, the revival that started at Oxford was just because I read the Word. I didn't have to study to preach. I didn't have to get this real fancy message. I didn't have to get some fancy title to it, like Fire and Blood. I didn't have to do anything like that, so what I'm going to do, I'm going to do the same thing I did at Oxford. And there he stood in St. Paul's Cathedral, opened up the book of Romans, and started all over again from the first chapter and began to read the Word of God. As he began to read the Word of God, people were aghast. Here he is speaking the Word in the English tongue. Doesn't he know that's blasphemy? Doesn't he know that's wrong? Doesn't he know that that will get him burned behind the church? But John Colette was unafraid and began to read the word. The next Sunday morning, you got it right, 500 souls showed up. The following Sunday morning, a couple of thousand show, souls showed up. A couple of weeks later, he had 5,000. A couple of weeks later, he had 20,000 people in St. Paul's Cathedral. So hungry were they to hear the word of God. And just a few weeks later, the history tells us that not only he had to go to several services on Sunday so that he could take the 20,000 that was in, move them out, so that another 20,000 could come in and hear the word of God. It was during one of these Sundays, as he was beginning to read the book of Romans, that a young man was sitting on the front pew of the church. His name was Erasmus. And he heard the word go forth in the English tongue here was a man that was a scholar here was a man that was a gifted linguist himself and he said you know he said I'm going to do something about this and Erasmus began to write a Greek New Testament and put it in its completion now granted the first one was very rough in fact when he went to the bishop to get permission to do it the bishop said well you can do it only if you put it alongside the latin vulgate so you're going to create a parallel bible and on one side you're going to put the latin vulgate and on the other side you're going to put the greek so that people will know that this is exactly the word of god well what the bishop didn't understand was that when he began to write uh, Erasmus being the scholar that he was uh, Erasmus wanting to make sure that he had the truth he studied out and made sure that what he penned in the Greek was exactly as it had been done aforetime before it had been changed. And here he had the Latin Vulgate that had been corrupted through the centuries uh, and talking about things like transubstantiation uh, and talking about things like due penance instead of repent and things like that. Uh, and what he did, he made a book that, ter- that exposed uh, all of the errors of the Latin Vulgate. Well immediately upon publication and that being printed out uh, and the bishop getting a hold of it and finding out the error of his ways, uh, it became one of the forbidden books. Erasmus was not very happy with his translation as it was. It needed more work, it needed some more uh, work, he had to get a hold of some more Greek manuscripts, the original Greek writings and everything else. So that he could study it out and make sure that it was correct. Uh, during his lifetime, he was to prov- uh, provi- uh, produce six different copies of the Greek New Testament Uh, each one of them getting better and better as he did it Uh, but the second one that he did uh, was done without the permission of the bishop Uh, it was done completely as an outlawed book uh, and it was the 1524 printing of Erasmus's Greek New Testament this time there was no Latin Vulgate uh, beside of it Uh, it was simply the word of God unchanged uh, and uncorrupted Uh, And this book right here is what we call our textus receptus it is the book that we get our New Testament from today and right here in my hands I hold the first printing first edition of Erasmus's 1524 Greek New Testament that book is so rare it is unbelievable how rare it is and there's something very precious about this book because in this book some scholar back in the 15th century or 16th century studied this book from cover to cover and you will see as you look through this uh, you will see all of his Latin notes that he wrote in a very fine hand now understand this in order to study in Latin you had to be nobility or somebody of great wealth so this book obviously belonged to somebody that was very very uh, um, very very important back then I wished we knew who it really belonged to but we can't tell that all these centuries later but this is a very precious artifact here uh, handle it with care when you do handle it uh, but Erasmus here had done his work uh, but it was the 1516 printing of the Erasmus's um, Greek Testament alongside the Latin Bible that got the attention of a young man that was going to Oxford University by the name of William Tyndall how many's heard of William Tyndall okay William Tyndall as we know him today is the father of the English language up until William's uh, time we were speaking Middle English brother uh, Jason Do you have that slide, uh, the Middle English? Okay, on the left-hand side was the language that they were speaking at about the time that uh, William Tyndall was born. And on the right-hand side is William Tyndall's writings and how he changed the English language during his lifetime. So you'll be uh, uh, able to see that and be able to make a comparison under understand that there is a great big difference between the middle english language and our modern day english language that we have today and william Tyndall is the one that created the english language as we know it today william Tyndall uh belonged to a secret society you remember me telling you about the cold uh, uh, of uh of uh of uh, Joseph of Arimathea's day and also of um, John Wycliffe's day the Caldees. well these secret society uh were still known as the Caldees and they were later known as the Lollards uh William Tyndall would belong to a little secret society that had got a hold of some of these forbidden books like Erasmus's Greek New Testament of 1516 alongside of the uh, Latin Vulgate uh, and he began to study and read this book. There was about 25 of these young men that met at a place called the White Horse Inn there in London, and they began to study the Word of God themselves. William Tyndall was a graduate of Oxford University. He also taught school there, and he became very, very scholarly. The thing about William Tyndall that was so different about the rest of them, the the history tells us that he was such a gifted language, uh, language, he had eight different languages he could speak and he spoke them so well that you could not know which one was his native tongue because he was so good at speaking them it was going to be important that he had these languages at his disposal because he was going to be put in exile and he was going to have to run from the law for many years and be able to have evade the law and be able to speak in a different tongue when he was in a different nation so that he would not be captured and burned at the stake uh, before he completed the task that God had set before him. After uh, he got so bold about the, uh, the Bible and studying the Bible see the one thing that they fought over back then was the fact that the scripture is the only authority from God it's the scripture that we go to it's not a man that we go to it's not a pope that we go to but it's the word of God that we go to and I would admonish you and I would tell you today and your pastor will agree with me I don't care who it is that stands behind this pulpit I don't care if it's the best preacher in the world that I know today brother George Hancock I don't care if it's pastor I don't care if it's me I don't care if it's anyone else if they start preaching the Word of God you need to get in the Word of God and make sure they're preaching and teaching you the truth the only way you're going to be deceived if you don't get into the Word of God for yourself and when your pastor preaches you go to the Word Understand and know what he's preaching to you and teach him And if you have a question, go to him. I can't tell you how many times people misunderstand. I didn't mean to go there, but I will while I'm here. Is that all right, Pastor? Well, William Kendall. These 25 young men meeting at the White Horse Inn. They become bold. They start reading the word where the word says, "Call no man father." They begin to read in the Word and they can't find anything to do with transubstantiation. Now, I know I've said that word several times and I haven't explained it to you. Let me tell you what the Catholic Church teaches. They teach that when you take communion, when you take the wafer and you take the fruit of the vine, they teach that when you put the wafer in your mouth that it becomes flesh. That it actually becomes the actual flesh of God. And that when you drink the fruit of the vine, it actually becomes real blood. Well, Martin Luther said, "You know, I've eaten the wafer and I've drank the fruit, and it still tastes like a wafer, and it still tastes like grape juice. Didn't taste like blood to me." And they begin to to argue with the church over the things that they found in the scripture. Well. Finally, William Tyndall was asked to leave Oxford University because he was getting so bold and so he became an employee of a man by the name of Sir John Walsh. Sir John Walsh was a very important man. He was a, a friend of the king. Isn't it wonderful the way that God puts people in high places in the right place at the right time? And this is the situation here. Here's Sir John Walsh. He's a friend of the king, and he employs William Tyndall to come in and tutor his two children and be a chaplain to him and his wife. Well, if I'm going to have a chaplain over me and my household, I want to make it sure that it's somebody that believes that the Word of God is the ultimate authority well that's how it was in Sir John Walsh's house and as William began to uh, tutor the children in the afternoons in the mornings he would get up and he was faithfully translating the Word of God from the Greek tongue into the English language the New Testament Bible he was working on that in the morning tutoring in the afternoon and back then lo and behold they didn't have video stores shame shame I told brother brother uh, yeah him over there brother shield last night i said uh the jews don't recognize the gentiles the catholics don't recognize the protestants and one pentecostal doesn't recognize the other pentecostal in the same video store that was free William Tyndall here he is they didn't have any video stores to go to they didn't have any ball games to go to they had nothing to do so it was on the weekends and uh, uh, Rebecca or Elizabeth Walsh says sir John I am so bored this house is so big I just can't take care of it all the time. And when I get finished at the end of the day, I'm exhausted. And we sit around here at night and there's nothing to do. What is it that we can do? And Sir John Walsh, you know, he had this he had this kind of honoring streak in him kind of like your pastor does. And he says, uh, I tell you what, he says, why don't we invite some of the the priest around town to come to the house on Saturday night and debate the scripture with uh, William Tyndall and uh and the oh, goody, goody, can we do that? And he says, sure, we can do that. So Sir John Wasp, being the friend of the king, goes to the bishops and the priests around town. And he said, we're going to have this Bible study at our house on Saturday night. And we would like for you to come there. And we want at least four or five of you there. Because we've got this one little bitty guy all by himself. Uh, and we want you to debate him on the word of God. And so these priests says, okay, goody, goody, we get to gang up on this guy. And so here they go over to Sir John Walsh's house. They show up on Saturday night, and they begin to debate the Word of God. All of a sudden, here's a man that can quote Scripture, and they're sitting there, and they've got nothing to turn to. They've got nothing to look at, and they don't have any Scripture memorized. And they're going, well, uh, you know, uh, um, mm-mm-mm. I was with a Mormon fellow one time, and we were over in the Philippine Islands. And one day, he asked me to uh, to tell him what I believed. <laughs> I love it when they do things like that. So all I did, I didn't, I didn't try to expound on what "Thus saith Jesse Cripps." All I did was start quoting scripture. And I probably quoted scripture for about five seven minutes and when I got done he knew exactly what I believed and he sat there and he looked at me and he goes uh, well I don't know the Bible that well And I said well all I have, all you have to do is get into the scripture oh well I read the scripture every day I read the Book of Mormon I said, well, I'm, I'm afraid to tell you that what you're reading is not Scripture. You need to get back into the Word of God. But see, here's these priests, and they don't have the Word of God committed to memory. They're the same ones that's going over to Hampton Court on the weekends. And there, Hampton Court, for those of you that don't know, Hampton Court was a palace, had 1,000 rooms in it. 1,000 rooms, built by a priest that was a single man without a family now why would a man have to build a building with 1,000 rooms in it 1,000 bedrooms in it when he was all by himself because in every one of the bedrooms he had prostitutes and the priest would take their weekend sabbatical and go over there and visit Hampton Court on the weekends because this was a necessary evil as they said back then well here is William Tyndall and he's debating with these men and they don't know anything about the Word of God they can't quote the Word of God and here he is quoting it from memory quoting it from his heart telling them what thus saith the Word of God and one of them speaks up after a few weeks of this and says, well wait a minute mr. William Tyndall He said, we would be better off without God's law as long as we have the Pope's law. And William Tyndall, with all his righteous indignation, rose up and he said, I will tell you, sir, good sir, that if the Lord will allow me to live many more years, I will see that the boy that drives the plow knows more about the scripture than you do it wasn't long that William Tyndall Sir John Walsh could no longer protect William Tyndall the heat was turned up they were trying to capture him so that they could burn him at the stake for heresy so William Tyndall had to do one thing he had to leave England in order to do the work that God had set before him he fled over to Germany and there he landed in Hamburg and there at Hamburg he lived with a man by the name of Martin Luther for a few months Martin Luther was working on the German translation of the Bible but you see Martin Luther didn't know the Greek language so he was translating the German Bible from the Latin Vulgate because he did not understand and know the German language and there william tyndall being the gifted linguist that he was knowing greek hebrew latin german all the eight different languages that he did began to work on the new testament it wasn't long 1524 william tyndall completed his new testament the first new testament ever uh completed in the english tongue he moved over to a city called Worms. we call it worms wrms there and in 1524, excuse me, he began to print the New Testament for the very first time. They began to print it the first time around in what is called the quarto version. This is quarto simply meaning quarter size. Remember that the Bible was not supposed to be in the hands of the common man. All of the Bibles up until that time were always being printed. In the full-size pulpit version because only the preacher was supposed to have a copy of the Word of God and here William Tyndall his very first Bibles he began to print in the English language and he printed them for the common man from the get-go now understand 1524 he's printing his very first ones it was while they were still in the printing press they had several copies of the book of Matthew printed. Just the book of Matthew when somebody told the authorities what was going on in the little print shop down around the corner William Tyndall found out just ahead of the authorities getting there he ran to the print shop grabbed as much of his material as he could including just a few copies of the book of Matthew and he fled the city of worms and headed to a city called cologne it was then that all of the Bibles and everything that he was working on all of his manuscripts and everything else were destroyed they burned the print shop down and destroyed all of his work today there is only one copy of that book of Matthew that is still in existence today it was thought to have been forever lost until in the late 1800s an English shopkeeper that owned an antique shop picked up a copy of an old, old book, something like David Copperfield or something along those natures. And there in the middle of that book, somebody had secretly bound that one copy of the book of Matthew from 1524 that William Tyndall had printed there at Worms. That's the only one that's in existence. It is totally priceless today he moved over to Cologne and there in 1524 and first part of 1525 he printed the New Testament completely this time he printed it in what was called the Octavo version and that is the eighth size version and it's about like this size uh, because in order to be able to smuggle them into England he wanted to make them as small as possible so that he could get them into the into the uh, nation of England They were wrapped in in bales of cotton. They were put in big old huge bags of flour. They were put in all kinds of things. And they started flooding into the English countryside. People began to get a hold of these Bibles as fast as they could. They were going all over the nation. And people, for the first time in over 1,100 years, the people had and were able to hold and possess the Word of God in their own tongue. It became a phenomenon. Everywhere they went, people were running around hiding these little New Testaments underneath their coats and the cloaks uh, so that they would not be arrested and burned at the stake uh, for everyone that was caught reading one of these uh, were taken down to a little old place called the Lollard Pit uh, and there they were put on trial without any uh, 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 any opportunity to bring witnesses in their own behalf uh, and there they were stu- tied to the the stake and there they most of the time they required that the children of that man or that woman would come and light the fire at the feet of the parents and watch their children their father or their mother burn so that they would never have to pick up one of these Bibles all of this was done in the name of religion and here he was flooding England with all of these things But it was at a dear cost to William Tyndall. Here he was still in exile. Here he still was running from the authorities, hiding from the authorities. The only thing that really saved him was that Cologne was a Roman Catholic city. And he was printing the books there in this Roman Catholic city where nobody would ever think to look for him. Because they knew he wouldn't dare come to a city that was a Roman Catholic city and start printing something like the English Bible. Well, the Lord Bishop at London was getting furious. Every time he caught somebody, he burned burn them at the stake. Uh, found a shipment of these Bibles. He would take them down to St. Paul's Cathedral. And there behind St. Paul's Cathedral, there at the cross, there behind St. Paul's Cathedral, he would burn all of these so-called forbidden books. Uh, he said things like this. Uh, we do not need the Bible in the English tongue, for if the common man found this thing, and they began to read that part uh, that says, if the right eye offend thee, pluck it. It out he said we would have a bunch of blind people running around England because they'd pull their eyeballs out uh, and if the baker read that part that said a little leaven leavens the whole lump uh, he said they'd start making le- the, the bread without any yeast in it uh, he said we can't have that going on in our nation so therefore they should not have the word of God I'd have loved to just hit him over the head with something I don't know how anybody that's so stupid can rise up to such an important position. The people began to know more of the Word of God than the priest did. It was during this time that the Lord Bishop of London said, well, wait a minute. We have got to do something to stop this. Every time we burn my Bibles, it just creates more and more demand for them. And people want to get their hands on it. Just like the kid, don't touch the stove. Okay, Daddy. And they reach out and touch the stove. And don't you dare let Boo Boo touch the stove and burn her little hand. That's from Papa Jess, And you tell her that. Anyway, uh, here he was. And every time they burned the Bibles, more and more in demand they became. So the Lord Bishop calls in a man, a very wealthy man, a man of great influence. A man by the name of Augustine Packington. And he says, Mr. Packington, we have a proposition for you. You are a merchant, and you have ships, and you travel back and forth from England over to Germany all the time. He said, I want you to do a special favor for me. He said, what is that? He said, when you get over to Germany the next time, He said, I want you to find all of these English Bibles that's being printed. I want you to do everything that you can, due diligence to seek out those Bibles, and you find out where they're coming from, and I want you to lay your hand on every one of them you can get, and I want you to bring them back over here so that I can burn them at St. Paul's place. Packington looked at him and said, lord bishop i would be most happy to but i don't want to spend my own personal money for this situation i'm a wealthy man but i don't want to give it away what do you propose how do you propose that i pay for these bibles the lord bishop said i will pay whatever price that has to be paid in order to get these bibles Augustine Packington kind of smiled underneath his breath uh, and he said, yes, Lord Bishop, uh, I will get a hold of every one of these Bibles that I can and I will bring them back to you. The reason Augustine Packington was smiling because he was a personal friend of William Tyndall. He went over to Germany, and there he looked up William Tyndall, and he said, I have a buyer for every one of your Bibles. And William Tyndall said, oh, that's great. You see, because I have uh, uh, made a great debt in order to print all these Bibles, I don't have any money left, uh, and I'm running out of money to print anymore, and I need somebody to buy these so that I can print some more. So tell me who it is that would buy my Bibles. Packington looked at him and said none other but the Lord Bishop of London and he said wait a minute if I sell them to the Lord Bishop he's gonna burn them all he said yes but the Lord Bishop is willing to pay any price so if we pay you four times the price of these Bibles two things are gonna happen number one when he burns them over in England it's gonna create a great demand for the word And on the other hand, you're going to have four times as much money, and you're going to be able to print four times as many Bibles. What a wonderful merchant he was. Pretty smart at that. And so he says, okay, we'll we'll do the deal. And so he takes all the Bibles back to England. All of a sudden, William Tyndall's got all the money, pays off all his debt, and all of a sudden the printing presses are going, and they're printing more Bibles. Over in, uh, over in London, they burned the Bibles, and all of a sudden there's a great outcry across the nation. Give us the word. Give us the word. Give us the word. Let us have the word in our own language. Let us speak the word in our own tongue. Let us teach our children the word in our own language. Let us tell them about a man that came from glory and gave his life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life let us tell them in their own language let them understand it in their own tongue well a few weeks went by and these Bibles are flooding England again the Lord Bishop over in London he's about ready to pull his hair out how in the world are all these Bibles getting over here all of a sudden they caught a young man as he was sneak uh, uh, secretly distributing these Bibles, a man by the name of Constantine, and they caught him and they brought him before the magistrate. And there they had him on trial, and there he was getting ready to be burned at the stake. And all of a sudden, the Lord Bishop walked in in front of the magistrate and said, "Hey, I got a proposal to make." He said, "We're going to make a deal here." He said, "Here's what we're going to do." Constantine, if you will tell us who's providing all of the money for all of these Bibles to be printed, he said, we'll let you go and we won't burn you at the stake. Constantine said, oh, yes, Lord Bishop. I will be most happy to make that deal. For as you see, Lord Bishop, it is you that has provided all the money for this fresh flood of Bibles to come in here. You have paid four times the price for each one of them and every one of them coming over. I remember the story of a man that was a an atheist. And uh, he was listening one time to a little widow woman pray. And this little woman was praying and she was praying that John, you know, I don't have any groceries in the cupboard. And I pray that you would send me some groceries. And this man that was an atheist said, you know, I'm going to fix her. I'm going to show her that there ain't no God. So he went down to the grocery store and he bought a bunch of groceries. He brought them out there, set them on the front porch, knocked on the door and he run over there hid behind the door at the corner of the house and the little woman walked out saw the groceries on the front porch began to lift her hands and thank god for the groceries and he walked out and said ha god didn't send them here i went and bought them see there ain't no god the little woman said thank you god for supplying the groceries and letting the devil pay the bill So here we had the Word of God going forth and the devil paying the bill. <laughs> oh, my God is infinite in his wisdom. Well, time goes on. William Tyndall's unhappy with his 1525 translation. He said in the very beginning of the book, he said, understand and know this. That this is nothing but a rough draft and he said if the Lord will allow me I will continue to work on it until it is completely finished and there he began to work upon that New Testament for many years to come there's only two Bibles from 1525 that still exist today every other one of them were burned and destroyed to keep the Word of God out of the common man's hand only two of them exist today both of them are one of them in the Baptist uh, the Baptist headquarters library and one of them's in the British Museum I went over to England just to be able to see these things a few years ago and they are so precious only two of them from 1525 still exist William Tyndall continued to translate and then began to work on the on the uh, Old Testament and it was when he was working on the Old Testament that the English language began to fall into place the way we know it today because the Hebrew lent itself to the English language so much better than did the Greek. Why is that? Because the Hebrew language and the English language are the only two what languages? Picture languages on the face of the earth. When he's painted, when they painted a picture in the Hebrew, it was very easy to, tra- easy to translate that into the English language because he was painting another picture and it was not near as difficult to, to translate as was the Greek, which is a very harsh and a very legalistic la- and very correct language. And so therefore, it made it a lot easier to translate the Old Testament. 1535, William Tyndall was there hidden away he had run from the authorities for all of those years he had used various aliases and different names throughout the length of time that he had been in exile understanding and knowing that he would never be able to go back home to his own country and in 1535 a man came in, or actually 1534 a man came over under the pretense of getting to to befriend him and to get to know him and his work and understand what he did was doing for the Word of God befriended him and then betrayed him and turned him over to the authorities in 1534 he was arrested and he was put in a, in a dungeon in a prison and there he remained for a very very long time 500 days in October the 15th of 1535 William Tyndall was led out of his cell and there, because he had been told that he had to die twice for his sins, they tied him to a stake and they put a noose around his neck. And as they set fire to the wood at his feet, they began to pull upon the string around his neck to choke him to death and burn him at the same time. William Tyndall looked up toward heaven his prayer was this Lord open the king of England's eyes within six months time the Lord answered his prayer because King Henry the eighth wanted to split with the Pope so that he could divorce his wife and take another woman his wife And he asked John Rogers to print an English Bible so that they could start the Church of England it was never really authorized by the king it was asked to be printed by the king and John Rogers printed the first Bible in the English tongue after William Tyndall's death And it's called the Matthews Bible the reason he called it the Matthews Bible he did not want to put his own name on it because it was William Tyndall's work and Thomas Matthew was one of the aliases that William Tyndall had used in his flight from the authorities and so John Rogers called it the Matthews Bible John Rogers was later put to death by Henry the eighth daughter mary for printing the bible that her dad had asked him to print in 1539 there finally came a decree by king henry the eighth that there would be a complete bible printed of the official bible of the english church and the great bible of 1539 was printed this is an original first edition first printing Of the great Bible after King Henry the eighth died Bloody Mary came to the throne you might remember his first daughter Lady Grey how many how many knows the story of Lady Grey Lady Grey was a Christian she was a Protestant and she was heir to the throne she was King Henry the eighth daughter she came through the throne and because she was not Catholic she reigned for a period of seven days, and her sister, who was a Catholic, Bloody Mary, had her arrested and beheaded her own sister so that she could come to the throne and try to turn the church back over or turn the nation back around to Catholicism instead of the, the um, Church of England. It was during the reign of Bloody Mary that three men that you may or may not have heard of one of them's name was John Calvin the other man's name was John Knox and the third man's name was John Fox these three men John Fox of Fox's Book of Martyrs all fled from England and they fled over to Geneva and there in Geneva they took with them William Tyndall's works and in Geneva in 1557 they printed a New Testament there in Geneva that was to be called the Geneva Bible and this is the last Bible that was ever printed in the English tongue that is not divided by verses there's no numbers in here it's written like the Bible was originally written this Bible here this 1557 Geneva Bible is available for you out there in the lobby if you want to pick one up They're twenty dollars you're, I'm the only person in the nation you can get them from. So if you want to pick one up, you can pick one up tonight. Uh, they're $20 for there. And I'll tell you one thing. You'll never read an easier Bible to read than a Bible that don't have numbers in the way when you start reading it. It flows so well and so good. But in 1560, they printed the complete Bible. They printed the, uh, they printed the 1560 Geneva Bible. Now understand this. The Geneva Bible is the Bible that George Washington read. It is the Bible of the Colonial Congress. It is the Bible that founded America. Now everybody wants to say, well, the, I thought it was the King James Version Bible. Understand this, even though the King James Version Bible that wound up being the Bible that we refer to most today and most scholars go back to today to make sure of the correctness of the doctrinal notes and everything that's in it uh, it was the it was the Geneva Bible that founded America why is that because people were afraid of anything that had been produced by the monarchy everything that the monarchy and the and the uh, government had ever done in the past caused them pain and grief and so they didn't want anything to do with it so it was the Geneva Bible which is called the Britches Bible. The reason it's called the Britches Bible is because uh, when Adam and Eve made themselves britches out of fig leaves when they were in sin. So that's why it's called the Britches Bible. There are several other Bibles that we hear about. This is called the She Bible, this 1611 first edition King James Version Bible because the first few Bibles that were printed in uh, Ruth 3 and 15, they accidentally called Ruth, A He in it instead of a she and so those are the great he Bibles and they're worth a fortune today Because of the misprint there and this is the she Bible they corrected it after just a few copies But this is the first edition first printing uh, 1611 King James Version Bible well we have in 1604 King James King of England appoints 54 men to come together around the nation and there they are to print a new Bible And in 1611 seven years 54 men at a great cost of money over all these those years they wound up printing 96% of William Tyndall's original Bible something that William Tyndall had done in just a little bit over one year's time with nobody's help but God's and today we have the King James Version Bible and that is the one that we refer to most often. In 1613, the King James Bible was made for the first time in, in a quarto size so that the common man could have it. Are you glad to have the word in your own tongue today? Everybody that's going to leave your Bible on the seat from now on, stand up. Okay, I guess that's fixed, Pastor. You got it fixed now. Just for the uh, just for the the story that I've told, our portion of the story that I've told uh, about William Tyndall and John Wycliffe is out of this book right here. It's called the Forbidden Book. You can also pick one of these up in the back. These are ten dollars. These um, these uh, Geneva Bibles are twenty dollars. I don't have any but just a couple of these left this one's the pastors I'm sorry sorry about that pastor but uh, I want to digress for just a minute if I may Can it can I have permission to do something personal for a moment will you do, allow me to do that yes or no okay thank you I most of you know that I was supposed to be here In the middle of May, May the 15th through the 18th to do this. And. uh, On the day that my oldest son got married. At 7 o'clock in the evening. My father passed away at 10 o'clock that morning. the most precious memories that I have of those last few months with my dad was being able to meet with him at the church at 2 o'clock every day and praying for an hour every day with him. It was during the last year and a half of my dad's life that he also got to know Brother George Hancock very well and my dad loved and revered brother George Hancock for being the man of God that he was and standing on the Word of God like he does and preaching the truth like he does after my father's death we and we our celebration of sending him home to be with the Lord I went over to dad's house and there my mother asked me to take a few things that uh, I had in the past given to my dad and asked me to take them and do what I would with them one of the things that I had given my dad was this 1585 Geneva Bible And my dad loved it very, very much. Brother George, would you come up here? George loved my dad, too. And they prayed together. They spoke of the word together. They encouraged one another and everything else. And I know that there's no other person in this world that I, that I can think of that my dad would probably rather have this Bible than Brother George Hancock. And it just so happens that it happens to be Brother George's birthday today, too. Brother George, I'd like to present to you in memory of my dad, who loved you very much and who prayed for you often and prayed that your ministry would go forth uninhibited, by the powers of Satan and that God's blessing would all be always be upon you I give this to you and pray that it would be a blessing to you and your family pastor you come forward once again quickly William Tyndall's Bible the last one that was printed back in 1549 is here beautiful Bible here King James Bible 1611 King James Bible 1613 1539 great Bible you cannot find these books most museums do not have these books and if they did have them they would be under lock and key and you would never get to touch them come up here touch them feel them understand there is power and authority in the word of god understand how many knows what the number seven is for god it's the number of completion is it not the king james version bible is the seventh printing Of the English Bible I think there's a reason why it's lasted all these years and I think it's a reason why all the scholars still refer to it today because I believe it's the completed work in the English tongue that God wanted us to have we have the up here 1580 printing of Martin Luther's commentary on the book of Galatians we have a 1633 um, uh, King James Version Bible here we have an 1811 printing one-third just is just one-third of the copy of Fox's Book of Martyrs the real Fox's Book of Martyrs is three volumes just like this excuse me Stephanus's Greek New Testament of 1601 uh, down on this end we have the English hexapla and I want to make uh, another gift to your pastor tonight uh, this is a facsimile copy of the 1641 English Hexapla, which is the history of the English Bible from Wycliffe's Day all the way to the authorized version with the Greek Testament above it. And you have the six English versions below it with the Greek um, version above it. This is a facsimile copy of the original 1641. This is for your library. Here we have the 1769 volume. You can leave it here until everybody sees it all. He keeps reminding me not to forget what I give to him. Right. Remember, the English language was brand new. He made up words like scapegoat. He made up words like Jehovah. He made up words that never existed before. He penned them for the first time. Because it was brand new, it changed there were some changes made to it over the first couple of 300 years in 1769 the King James Version Bible was revised to take in the changes in the words and the meaning of the words from the original 1611 if you have a Bible program and you go to that program and you print it out when it gets prints out at the bottom of the page in the footnotes it says 1769 KJV this is the 1769 KJV right here here we have a couple of fragments from the Dead Sea Caves that date back 1700 years and here this is the only document I asked no one to touch this is a Hebrew scroll it includes the complete Torah the first five books of the Bible, complete, 80 feet long, almost 400 years of age, handwritten on sheepskin, a most precious artifact. This, Look at it, but don't touch this. Turn the pages of this. If you're under the age of 16, have an adult turn the pages and turn several pages at a time so you don't risk run the risk of tearing these. Is that all right? Praise the Lord. Any questions I'm going to tell i can I open it up for a few questions, pastor? I'll open it up for just a couple of questions just in case somebody has a couple of questions. One interesting note up until the late 1800s about 1885, every King James Version Bible printed prior to that time had all of the apocryphal books in it. So you'll see that when you look at all these Bibles You'll see the apocryphal books in here too. Okay, Pastor? The apocryphal books are not canon. Okay? Canon meaning scripture. Uh, ordained of God. Anointed of God. The Bible says that the scripture was given to us by holy men of old as they were moved on by the Holy Ghost. The apocryphal books were not anointed of God. They were not inspired scripture. What they are... Is they are historical books, and most all of them were written in the four hundred years of silence between the Old Testament and the New Testament, when there were no prophets and no judges in Israel. That's why the uh, that's why the Jews say they're not anointed, they're not inspired, because God didn't have any prophets, He didn't have any judges, He didn't have any priests in Israel to do these things. So they are used and they are good to read for historical purposes, but not for, not for doctrinal purposes. All right. That's correct. Yeah. As part of the collection. In fact, in, uh, in 16, 15, 16, 14, they made a law that said you couldn't print a Bible without them in there. Because if you did, you'd be fined $50 and put in jail for a year. So that's why they were included. And in 1880, there was a church council got together, and they took them out of the King James Version. And so most King James Version printed today don't have them in there. Pastor, come on up here and take the service.